0: Pringle, lead pastor of Effie Church, and this is our podcast.
1: What's up, Effie Church? Hey, listen, I hope you feel lucky to be here. Is it okay to use the word lucky in church? Like, can we be lucky? I guess like lucky is just fortunate. Fortunate is favored. Favored is blessed. We're blessed. There we go. It's like the stages of Kevin Bacon there to get to what we're allowed to say. Like, I honestly feel that way. It's like luck is, you know, you flip a coin and it comes up heads and you're like, yes, good luck. But when I come to church, when I come to meet my God, it's like I'm using a two-headed coin. I know what's coming up. I know he's here. I know he's ready. I know that when I walk into his house, I can experience his presence. I don't have to hope, I don't have to cross my fingers, this isn't superstition, this isn't like, maybe if I do everything right, God might be here, maybe, maybe, I don't know. We're blessed, is what I'm saying. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have, in your grace, and your goodness, and your kindness, and your mercy, in your love, saw fit to bless us in every way we have us to recognize those as we recognize you in worship. In Jesus' name I pray.
0: Amen. I want to start off this series with a question. Most of us say that we believe what's written in this book. Right? That it's absolute truth. That it is the Word of God, the inspired Word of God. And my question is, if we actually believed... But we say we believe in the word. How would our lives change? If we actually believed what's written in this book. How would our lives change? If, if we actually believe that God has our best interests at heart. If we actually believe that what he says, the, the parameters he puts on my life are for my good. They're for my best life. How would that change my relationships? How would that change my downtime? How would that change my my thought life? How would that help me process life, the the world around me? How would it change the way I view my coworkers, my family, my time at church, my wallet, my budget? How would it change my life? Our series here at Freedom Valley lately are very discovery-oriented. We we go on these journeys together through Scripture, and we discover truths hidden beneath. I believe God wants us to go on a generosity-discovering mission this month. He wants us to truly believe what it says in this book and to uncover and unearth the gifts inside of you that you don't even know you have yet passions inside of you for others that you don't even know you have. I believe he wants to stir up a spirit of generosity within us and right understanding of money and our resources in God's word. I think it starts there actually. You know it often surprises Christians when they discover just how much the Bible does talk about money. It talks about money a lot. In fact, there are over 2,300 verses about money, wealth, possessions. 2,300 verses. Now Jesus spoke more, uh, he spoke roughly 15% of his teaching was literally about money. Out of the 39 parables that we see in the four gospels, 11 of them were about money. He cared deeply about it. Some people complain that all the church wants to talk about is money. But honestly, if all we talked about was money, it might not even match the Bible. (laughs) During offering time every week, we say, you know, now is the time we get to worship God with our giving. And we really do believe that giving is an act of worship, right? That we get to give. We don't have to give. We consider it a privilege, not an obligation. He includes us in his plans, and he allows us to participate. Isn't that a privilege? Some of you might shake your heads and say yes, and yes, amen, pastor, but the reality is probably most of you don't actually believe that. I have studies to back me up. In fact, there's a bunch of studies in your sermon notes today if you want to read through them, but one of them says that a 2007 Barna Research Group study revealed that only 5% of adults in America tithe. Among those that do, evangelicals, us, uh, we're we're the most generous, but still only 25% of us tithe. A a 2019 report by Pushpay, some of you may recognize that name. It's what we use to process online giving. Our church app is through Pushpay. Pushpay reported in 2019 that tithers only make up 10 to 25% of any congregation. (laughs) They process Hillsong's giving as well, so... Any congregation, 10 to 25 percent. Here at Freedom Valley, our church partners, the ones that have committed ourselves to giving here, serving here, attending here, growing here, only 66 percent of us tithe. Certainly, if any of the numbers should be 100 percent, it's that one. Right? But even that number, if all partners tithe, would only be 31 percent of our weekly congregation. So do we? actually honestly see it as a privilege do we even know what it means right early in our marriage Aaron and I will be married 13 years in May i believe and but early on you know struggling through how to manage our finances and barely making ends meet as young adults we got married young you know and just working all of that out we really struggled with the concept of tithing you know it was seemed like an astronomical amount of money to to give God 10% of everything that came in. Like we are barely making ends meet on 100%, God. How can we survive on 90, right? And I remember sitting down at our kitchen table. Now, we were both church kids. I was a pastor's kid all my life. You know, I understood tithing. I I deeply understood the concept. I I was not ignorant on the, the concept. And so I sat down at my kitchen table and I remember looking at all the bills to pay and the amount of money I had to do it and just having this really God moment. (laughs) Like, how do you honestly expect me to do this? And I just remember God sort of dropping this question in my heart. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And I had to sit back and really think about it. Do I actually trust God or do I just say that I do? Because if I actually trust God right now, I will give him 10% and trust him to take care of the rest. If I choose not to tithe right now, I'm essentially saying to God, I do not trust you. Just couldn't bring myself to say it. Just couldn't bring myself to do it because I, I do trust God. And so I have to literally put my money where my mouth is, right? I had to. Do I trust you, God, or not? And now we've been faithful givers above and beyond our tithes and tithers for probably 10 or 12 years. You know, I wish I could say that the fear eventually is completely 100% conquered. But every once in a while, most of the time, I'm all in. Don't even think about it. It's money that goes out, and I'm very happy. I consider it a privilege and my honor to do that. But every once in a while... (laughs) Still like, ah, I don't know. You know, I could be doing this, this, and this with that money. It just seems like such a chunk. Like, God, you know what bills I have, right? I almost can convince myself sometimes that I'm being irresponsible by giving that money to God. The temptation still creeps back in once in a while. You know, people often think that pastors have this magical gift of faith Or something. Like, I'm not a real person. I see people at the grocery store sometimes, and they're like, Pastor Candace, what are you doing here? (laughs) You know, like, surely you're at the church 24 7. Like, you don't belong in real life. But no, uh, the reality is I'm a person just like you. Little mouths to feed in the house and bills to pay, you know? Those temptations, the fears are real. They're real, and I get it deeply. Get it. But one of the studies uh, that I read this week about tithing and the statistics in our country and in, in our world today uh, said that pastors actually do think different, differently about tithing statistically. We tend to see it more as a discipline than a, a spur of the moment. Thing. The, the average Christian tends to see generosity as something that you do when somebody needs it, right? It's a response to a need. It, it's so, sort of spur of the moment. It, it happens randomly. Whereas pastors tend to see it more as a discipline. It's a budget line item. It's something you plan for and are intentional about. So we do sort of see it differently, and I hope to help you see it a little bit more in the pastor mindset, I guess, today. We're going to dive into the subject of generosity this month, but before we get to the other stuff, we really have to understand tithing. It is foundational to biblical generosity. You almost can't understand generosity from a biblical perspective without understanding tithing first. And there's all kinds of misconceptions about it within the church. Some people think, you know, well, I give 10%. God doesn't specifically say I have to give it to the church, right? I can give it in other places. Isn't that fine? It really isn't. Not if you're talking about the biblical word tithe. Tithe is actually a Hebrew word. It literally means 10%, and it specifically went to the temple. It is the only place a tithe could go. If you gave it to other places, great, but it's, it's not a tithe, so it's not the word. That's not what it means. And so we have to understand tithing from a biblical perspective, from a foundational perspective, uh, and sort of separate from generosity. They are both heart issues. Tithing and generosity are both heart issues, not money issues. But I now believe that one is more about conquering fear, and one is about cultivating a love for others. And so we're going to tackle them differently. Throughout this series, Now, to, to begin this and to talk about tithing, we're going to go to the book of Malachi. Malachi is one that we often quote and when we talk about tithing. Malachi 3.10 says, bring the whole tithe. Test me in this. And so we're going to get there today, but we're going to see sort of the background to that as well. Some of you may remember we used Malachi as a jumping off point back in our Written in the Stars series in December. right? Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It's a very short little book at the end of the Old Testament. It's just four chapters, and each of those chapters are short. It's a small book uh, written by the prophet Malachi as a conversation between God and his people. It's actually a a list of six disputes between God and his people. God is sort of pleading his case, proving his arguments to his people. And honestly, the people are a bit contrary, (laughs) argumentative Arrogant and indignant, if you want to just state it plainly. They're, they're not responding well to God. And you would think they would by now. By the end of the Old Testament, it had been a while. It's a, a walk with God. They've been on for a while now. A hundred years before the book of Malachi was written, they were literally in an exile. They were in punishment. The Babylonian exile happened 100 years before the book of Malachi was. Born. It was also 400 years before the prophet John the Baptist came. Do you remember this now? This is the context that the book of Malachi happens within. And you can see there the people's state of mind with the very first dispute. God comes in right in the beginning of the book of Malachi and he says, I have loved my people very deeply. And the people respond not with, yes, thank you, God. We love you so much. We appreciate your love. They respond with, really? How have you loved us? Like, really? Arrogant indignation. They're so entitled by this point. They can't even see the blessing that God has had in their life. that They can't even see it. And so dispute number two, then, is God saying, look, I am your father and master. Yet you don't honor me like one. He says, you despise my name, actually. And the priests, the ones who are supposed to honor the name of the Lord, they say, who, us? Like, surely, God, you're talking about somebody else. Who, who us? When have we despised your name? Again, so entitled. Can't even see it. Most of us are so entitled. We can't even see where we're disrespecting. The name of the Lord. And so God comes back and he pleads his case. And we're going to start reading Malachi 1 verse 7. You have shown contempt, not disrespect, not just um, forgetting to honor the name of the Lord. This isn't an afterthought. You have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. Then you ask, how have we defiled the sacrifices? You defile them by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Some things you have to understand here before we fully get into this. The law given to Moses by God back in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that law clearly says so many times to bring... Perfect sacrifices before the Lord. No blemishes on the animals, no blind animals, no lame or injured animals. Perfect sacrifices. These were the only sacrifices worthy to a a perfect God. It showed the utmost respect for the God of creation to bring him good things. Anything with a blemish was the product of sin being in the world, right? And so it showed impure motivations, and it showed an improper understanding of the God of creation. Now, are any of you shepherds in here today? Anybody understand sheep at all? No, we're not in an agrarian culture anymore, so we don't often, yeah, a little bit. Maybe, (laughs) we don't often understand sheep. The majority of us, we don't quite get this, but can you imagine having a flock of sheep going through them all, picking through, you know, oh, you're, you're perfect, I can't have you. You know, you're too white and fluffy, not you. You look great, go on. Oh, that one, the one that can't walk, the one that can't see, the one that's not gonna make me any money. I'll give you to God. That's essentially what they were doing. This is the one I can spare. This is the one that I'll give to the Lord because I need these others to make me more money. They weren't going through and saying, this is the one. It's perfect. This is, is the, the one that is worthy of a perfect, amazing, good God. I'm going to bring him good things to honor him. It was a heart issue. To give God what other people wouldn't want instead of what he deserves is a clear sign of contempt. Again, not just an afterthought, contempt, God's word, not mine. He's basically saying this is just religion to you. You're just fulfilling an obligation at the bare minimum, by the way, not participating in a relationship you feel deeply about. It shows contempt. And God says, try giving gifts like this to your governor. See what he thinks. Interestingly, the word translated governor here is not a Hebrew term. Persian term, a Babylonian term. The, the Persian word is actually pachah, I think. P-E-C-H-A-H, pachah. And it's, it literally is a Babylonian term representing the nation that Israel was still subject to. It means that Israel is bringing sacrifices to their God which are less worthy than those they brought to their oppressors. Sounds crazy. Why would you do that? Until you realize that most of us probably spend more on taxes every year than we give to our God. Right? And you might say, well, I'm required to do that, right? Because if I don't, I go to jail. Right? So disobedience to the government is more expensive than obedience to the government, right? If you disobey the government, you end up having to go to jail. You pay your freedom. You you maybe pay huge fines. You end up paying more in the long run. Disobedience to the government is more expensive than obedience to the government. You don't think God works in a similar way? You don't think sin is actually way more expensive in the long run than simple obedience? You don't think sin wants more than 10% of your budget? eventually spiraling out of control, it will take all of it and more. Why do we think God should work any other way? We we all complain about taxes, but we're also grateful to live in a country that takes care of us. If you've ever been outside the country, especially a third world country, you know it is a privilege to live in the U.S. of A. I have been to at least three, maybe four uh, third world countries, India, South Africa, Lesotho, Ecuador, I can tell you from firsthand experience, our government does take care of us. The streets are, are clean. They're a system of just upheld, you know, roads paved and maintained. We have a system of healthcare, a system of justice, of safety. Sure, all of those things are flawed. Absolutely, they are. But believe me, it is a privilege to pay my taxes with the understanding that I do get some things out of it. It's an honor. I'm grateful. And if I didn't pay them, the consequences are way worse. I lose freedoms when I don't give the government what's due. I'm considered a thief, right? Why do we think God should be different? One of the most common complaints about churches is that they ask for money all the time. Someone told me I was brave in the last sermon series for tackling the subjects of anger. I think money is actually a much more brave subject. Much more brave subject. It's something people love to complain about. The church just wants money all the time. But really, why do we think God should be different? We're not just asking for money all the time. We're talking about simple obedience. Very simple obedience. Malachi 1.9, he goes on to say, go ahead, go ahead. Beg God to be merciful to you. But when you bring that kind of offering, why should he show you any favor at all? Says the Lord of heaven's armies. When you don't honor God in the way he asks you to honor him, you're showing him that he's not actually your God after all. You're putting pride and greed over him. Therefore, he's not your God, you are. So God says, okay, then you you must be able to to take care of it, right? Go ahead. If you're the God, you take care of it. Just like he said to Job, remember, two weeks ago. He said, go ahead, take care of yourself, Job. If you could do that, even I would praise you. Go ahead, try it. Take care of yourself. But when you submit yourself to him and him alone, following all his requests, giving him the respect he deserves, (laughs) of course he's going to. Be merciful to you. Of course he's going to take care of you because he is actually your God then. If you say God is your God, but you don't tithe, is he really? Some of us are begging God to rescue us from situations. God, why don't you heal me? Why don't you deliver me? Why don't you whatever, we're begging him to rescue us from situations. But God is saying, look, you're not there yet. If I rescued you now, it would be enabling behavior that's hurtful to you. God is not an enabler. Enabling some some selfishness in your life that's ultimately going to cause you more harm, pain down the road. Learn the discipline of giving God the best, of honoring him the whole way. And you can unlock his mercy in your life. That way, when you do actually forget things, when things are an afterthought, he gives you mercy willingly and kindly, like a good father would. Malachi 1 verse 12 goes on to say, but this is still God talking, but you dishonor my name with your actions, not with your words. Words are probably fine. They said all the right words. You dishonor my name with your actions. By bringing contemptible food, you're saying it's all right to defile the Lord's table. You say, it's too hard to serve you, Lord. Does that sound familiar? It's too hard. You're asking for too much. right? It's too hard to serve the Lord, and and you turn up your noses at my commands. Meaning, you actually think God is a harsh slave driver, not a good father loves you so much. It's a wrong understanding of who God is. Think of it. Animals that are stolen and crippled and sick are being presented as offerings. Should I accept from you such offerings as these? Asked the Lord. Cursed is the cheat, a defective one who promises to give a fine ram from his flock, but then sacrifices a defective one. To the Lord, for I am a great king, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and my name is feared among the nations. Anybody remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament? A husband and wife couple, part of a brand new thriving church that was giving everything into itself. They were providing for each other. They were giving so generously to each other to take care of the poor, to to spread it out and make it even, to, to take care of each other. Ananias and Sapphira went out and they sold a field. And they brought all the money to the church, right? All the money. They told everybody it was all the money, but it wasn't actually. It was... A lie. They lied to the church about what they were bringing. They were trying to make themselves seem better. They, they didn't have to bring all the money. Nobody told them they had to bring all the money. They were trying to make themselves seem better than they were. And God struck them dead on the spot. I used to think that was a super harsh, like God, what? It seems like a real harsh judgment, but it was happening for hundreds of years. This was written 400 years before John the Baptist came. Hundreds of years of God's people lying about the offerings they were bringing. God said, no more. Cursed is the cheat who promises to give a fine ram from his flock, but then sacrifices a defective one for the Lord. Malachi 3, verse 6. I am the Lord and I do not change. That is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. Because of God's mercy, he lets them live. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But you ask, how can we return when we have never gone away? See, they were going through the motions still, but their hearts weren't actually in it. God wasn't asking for a return to procedure. He was asking for a heart return. He wanted all of them. He wanted them to do it for the right reasons. Anybody married for a long time in here and, and heard the wife say something like, you know, I, I don't just want you to do the dishes. I want you to want to do the dishes. Right? And what does the man say back? Who would want to do the dishes? Why? <laughs> Why would you want to do the dishes? Right? But it's not kind of what God's saying here. I don't want you to just bring me sacrifices. I want you to want to bring me sacrifices. I want you to want to bring the best sacrifices. He's asking for their heart return, not just to go through the motions. Jesus was the one who said Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Meaning uh, the, the saying, trace the money, right? You can follow the money is kind of biblical, <laughs> right? You can trace the money. Show me your monthly budget and I can pretty much tell you where your heart is. What you spend your money on. It's, it's a heart issue because what we do, our actions flow from our hearts. Therefore, we can also trace our hearts, what's in our hearts back through our Actions, The people were saying, we're we're with you, God, we're with you. But God was saying, I can tell differently by your behavior. I know you don't actually believe what you say you believe. You're not actually following what's in this book. If you actually believed it, you would change. He goes even harder in verse 8. Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? I still can't see it. You've cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. You are under a curse for your whole nation has been cheating me. And here's the verse we we love to quote, but it comes right after a pretty harsh one. Malachi 3.10 says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Not many places throughout the word does God say to test him. In fact, sometimes it's a little dangerous to put God to the test. But here he is openly telling you, test him. Try it. He's eager to prove himself to you. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall From the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies, then all nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight. Withholding from God puts barriers between you and him. I'm not talking about uh, relationship barriers, right? This is not a works-based theology. You have salvation through Christ Jesus' blood, and you don't have to do anything to earn that. That's not what we're talking about here. God's love is unconditional. There's nothing you can do that would separate you from the love of the Father, but his blessings are conditional. This is not God putting up uh, barriers out of punishment, this is us putting them there out of mistrust. We're the ones keeping God at arm's length. He's dying to protect us. He's dying to give to us. He's dying to open up the windows of heaven for you. You keep him at bay. You keep pushing him away by withholding from him. You don't fully trust him. Just like I did sitting at my computer, trying to pay my bills and saying, God, if I don't tithe right now, I'm telling you I don't trust with my actions, just couldn't bring myself to do it, both because of the curse, if I don't, and the blessings, if I do. It is both. Not only do we get to not experience the curse when we are God's people, but we get to experience his goodness, too. And it is overwhelming goodness. Why would I ever cheat the God of the universe when all good things come from him in the first place? James 1.17 tells me every good and perfect thing comes from him. Every good and perfect thing. Every good thing in my life is from God in the first place. Of course I want to give back to him. Of course I do. Aaron and I were talking about this the other day, and he said, yeah, you know, it's, it's like cats and dogs, right? I was like, explain. Um, he said, you know, you provide food and water for them provide a roof over their head you give them toys to play with and treats and you let them sleep in your bed any crazy dog owners out there let them sleep in your bed right you provide for them and dogs love it they love you for it right dog lovers right yeah big dogs don't get too excited just the big ones just kidding don't hate me and you'll mean male later. But the dogs, they do. They love you for it. They're, they're gracious. They show their gratitude all the time, right? They're eager to please you. They uh, trust you. They go with your flow. That They try to please you every chance they get. Where you are, they show up. Cats, on the other hand, <laughs> do all the same things for them. Put a roof over their head. Give them food and water. But they only show up when they feel like it. Only give you attention when it suits them. Change their routine constantly and expect that you show up for it. And some of them complain loudly when they don't get their way. (laughs) We're to have dog energy toward God, not cat energy toward him. An attitude of gratitude that, that God has given you so much that we are blessed to be a blessing. Or are to live with eager expectations that good things come from him. And because of it, we show up when he asks. We give generously when he asks, not holding anything back out of selfishness or fear, but wholeheartedly honoring him the way he asks to be honored. Somebody told me after the last service, you know what? I realized something today. I'm a cat. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to work on that. I work on showing up when God asks because he's given me so much. Giving to God is a privilege because it brings you into the streams of his blessings. Remember, the the love of God is unconditional. The blessings of God are conditional. This is not a works-based gospel. Please hear me on that. You're not earning your salvation. You're showing yourself worthy of his blessing. Withholding from God puts barriers between us and him. Can't bless you if, if you're off doing your own thing. If you're showing him you're, he's not actually your God. And most of us would argue that we're not withholding out of, of some sort of selfishness or, or rebellion. We're withholding out of fear. But if anything, my studies this week have taught me is that there's really only two types of Christian non-tithers. The ignorant ones, the ones who just don't know, they've never been taught. And the rebellious ones. Mm -hmm. It's really only two ways to be. You're allowing fear to make you rebellious, sure, but isn't fear and selfishness really sort of the same thing in this context? I have to take care of myself because I don't trust that you will, God. It's rebellion. We don't actually believe what's in this book. We're afraid God God won't deliver on his promises, so we we withhold. We hold things very tightly because we've got to take care of ourselves. We withhold out of fear. And fear and faith don't play nicely together. They don't mix. And my dad used to always say that tithing tends to be the last spiritual discipline that people conquer. And it is. I've seen it many times, but that's not to say that it's the least important. Rather, I think it might just be one of the most important. That's why it takes us so long to conquer it. Satan doesn't want you trusting God. He wants you withholding. He wants you keeping him at arm's length. He wants barriers between you and him. But this is not just a money issue. It's not just money and numbers. It is a heart issue. You either don't understand, or if you understand, you're in rebellion against him. You just haven't brought yourself to trust him yet fully. The thing is, you know, with other sins, you know, when we slack on sexual morality, we're, we're sinning against ourselves, the Bible says. It's us. We're hurting. When we're proud, we fall. Pride comes before a fall. When we don't read our Bibles, when we don't hear from God, we're not developing our own brains and mindsets and thought processes. We're hurting ourselves. But when we fail to tithe, we're cheating God. We're cheating God. Some translations say we're robbing Him. God. The the God who has given you every good and perfect thing. The creator of the universe. The one who put breath in your lungs. That's who we're cheating? God is a giver. And he's always productive. When you put something in the hand of God, it doesn't just sit there and do nothing. He does things with that money. And you can tell a couple of things just from this passage alone. Number one, he feeds his people with it. He provides for the pastors, the priests in the Old Testament, the ones who dedicated their lives to him and to teaching the people. He wants his people well fed in the house of God. And number two, he uses it to draw people to him. Verse 12 says, then all the nations will call you blessed for your land will be such a delight. Meaning if, if the church, the temple is, is tattered and there's not enough money to fix things and update them and make them look attractive, and we're not fulfilling the obligation to attract the world to him, why would people want to come to a dead and dying and falling apart church? The money that comes in to the church is what we used to see 67 baptisms last year. It's... What we saw, 364 salvations because of it. It's what we used to see 106 I'm in responses and 93 partners in a small group and 96 people returning for a third time and 215 people serving in serve teams. This is how we get the ministry of the Lord accomplished. You're meant to be a stream of God's blessing that's not only coming in, God's blessing coming in, but also pouring back out. Some of us have turned those blessing streams into rivers, flowing onto many people. Many people are blessed because of the blessing that's come in. But some of us are more like the Dead Sea. Lots of streams coming in. God's pouring into you like crazy, but you're just keeping it. nothing can thrive in those waters. No fish live in the Dead Sea, right? There's water sources coming in, but nothing is going out. We hoard it. It puts up barriers between us and him. Fear and faith don't mix. When we don't tithe, we make the name of the Lord look bad. That's why God takes it seriously. It is the basis of all biblically-based generosity. If you're not tithing, Look, I get it. I understand the fear, the temptation to want to hold everything to yourself, the control, right, to to want to maintain a a bit of control in your life. But as we learned in in this past series, we're not the ones who control the success of our lives anyway. God does that. Trust him with it. Begin to tithe and, and then look at how you can give above and beyond beyond that because here's the thing you're never going to reach this magical number where god says okay you can relax now and just sit back and be comfortable he's always going to be challenging you to be more generous to reach out more to to give more this is not a transactional faith we're not seeing how little we can give to get the most back it's a little different from our taxes in that way Right, We're not seeing just how little we can give to get the most back from God. God is asking us for everything. Everything. All your trust. All of you. Stop negotiating with the God of the universe and just trust him. Just trust him. The the book of Malachi doesn't just mention tithes. It talks about offerings as well. And the New Testament takes this approach, too. Jesus acknowledged tithing as a given. He said, yeah, you should tithe. Of course you should tithe. But also don't ignore justice and faith and and mercy, meaning there's more to it than just fulfilling a financial obligation. This is a heart issue. Overcoming the fear of tithing, is, is it's overcoming fear. The rest of it is developing a heart for people. They are both heart issues. You know, we are nearing the end of a two-year campaign here at Freedom Valley. The Freedom Foundation as a concept that we started two years ago, not as a campaign, I'm starting to call them cycles, not campaigns, but as a generosity investment into our church's future and into our community and missions, endeavors beyond that. I believe God wants to use this church to change the world with the message of the gospel. And we've used the money that has come in toward our mortgages. We've paid down a lot of debt toward the future of Freedom Valley, right? We saved over half of it toward a Freedom House project in the future. And we haven't talked much about this lately because we've been very stalled on that Freedom House project with permits and some vision and direction changes as well. We really want to do what's actually going to be helpful in our community, the best possible use of of the resources that God has given us. And so we're taking some time right now, maybe over the next year to continue to save money for it, but also really ask God, what would be the best use of our time, our, our finances, our energy, our resources? God sometimes communicates through closed doors. Right. And, and sometimes he closes doors and we're forced to move on to something else. But I believe that soon God is going to begin to show us open doors by the end of March. If you have been giving, thank you so much for giving into that. And since March of 2018, we've seen a total of $213,224 as of last weekend come in toward the Freedom Foundation. That is money over and above our tithes. I know I'm already talking to a generous church based on that alone, right? This month, we're going to be challenging ourselves. As we go throughout this series, we're going to be challenging our ideas of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to serve God wholeheartedly, and the the privileges and responsibilities that come with that. Right now, all I'm asking is that you take this next month and you pray, Pray about what God wants you to do with your resources, what he wants you to do with the privileges he's given you. I've never been more convinced that Christian generosity starts with tithing. It is foundational to how we do everything else. And I can't challenge you to give to something else without challenging you to tithe first. Be a Christian and a tither. Tithing is just the beginning. It's just the bare minimum, really, of what God is asking you to do. It's how to be lined up with the blessing streams of God. But generosity doesn't stop there. Over and above your ties, God's going to challenge you. He's going to stretch you, but it is always worth it. I'm not saying that he'll immediately give you back double, you know, or he'll give you a raise the very next day, although I have heard of those things happening, believe it or not. But I'm not saying he's going to bless you with mansions and the lifestyles of the rich and famous and you're going to get exactly the financial things that you want. The Bible does, says, does say that he will provide for all of your needs according to his riches and glory. He will take care of you. You take care of the house of the Lord and he will take care of you in ways you could never expect. He given peace that passes all understanding. In the middle of the storm, he assures you that he's going to take care of you. He surrounds you with people, with a family that helps you through times of crisis. And this is the promise from the word of God. If you actually believe what's in this book and stop making decisions based in fear, you are not powerless against the world. The thought that there, there's not much we can do about the economy or our work ethic or our job situation it's just not true. You serve a big God. Jesus found the money that he needed to pay his taxes in a fish's mouth. He's a big god. he can pull money out of anywhere. He's God. Stop limiting him with with your fear oh, it all comes down to do you trust God or don't you? You know, And I'm not saying all, all money decisions are easy. I know they're not. And I'm not saying you have to give to the Freedom Foundation in the next year to prove that you trust God. That's not what this is. We are going to try to raise $100,000 toward that project in the next year. At the end of the month, I'm going to challenge you to make a one-year commitment to, to help with that. If you've received from this church, if this church is feeding you spiritually, help take care of it. That's what I'm going to ask. But right now I'm just asking if you trust him. Do you trust that he has the perfect solution to your issue? Do you trust that he knows your situation better than you know it? Do you trust that he wants to take care of you? That he wants you so blessed Outsiders will look at your life and say, how do I get that? Not just the blessings, but also the peace that you weather the storm with. The way you can trust God despite how it looks. Do you know, Aaron and I have been through the ringer the past two years. And financially, a major health issue can be extremely daunting, even when you have great health insurance. But I've never been scared of the finances aspect of it. Anytime I was tempted to get even a little panicked, I stood on the promises of God. We have been faithful tithers, God. You promised to open the floodgates of heaven for us. You promised you would take care of us. And every time I did that, I was reminded, he's always taken care of us in the past. Why should today be any different? Of course he's going to take care of me. If you want to be able to look at life with that kind of confidence, trust God with your finances. Begin to tithe. See what God will do. He literally says, put him to the test. See what he will do. God loves you so much. He just wants to take care of you. He wants your trust because he deserves it. He wants to bless you beyond anything you could ever dream of. And he's calling you to something higher than you can possibly imagine. If you don't trust him with your finances, you don't trust him with any of it. Jesus laid down his life for your soul. God isn't asking you to go out and lay down your literal life for him. Today, he's just asking for your trust. Don't tell him you trust him. Show him. I consider it an absolute privilege, true, deep honor to serve God in that way. I hope you'll join me in that. It really is a better way to live. Sometimes it feels like a sacrifice, but it is an absolute privilege to be asked to serve God in that way. He takes care of us. He wants to take care of us. Oh God, today, we ask that you would show us that, that. That we wouldn't walk out of here today with guilt and condemnation. You, your spirit has not come to bring any of that. But that we would walk out of here today inspired to trust you on a new level. Inspired to take our faith to a new level, to challenge the fear that goes on in our mindsets, to cast it out, to conquer it once and for all, knowing that you are God, that you are who you say you are, that you're going to do what you say you're going to do, that you are our provider, our deliverer, our comforter, our source for every good and perfect thing. Father, we thank you and we praise you for every hand raised today, every move made toward you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's it's useful to teach us, correct us, guide us into all truth. Father, use your word in our lives. Call out things that are not as faithful as you would have them be. Help us see the inconsistencies in what we say and what we do. And instead of feeling guilt and condemnation about that, Father, I just ask that you would empower us as a church, as individuals to give everything, to give everything to you. Help us to be the vibrant, passionate, selfless church you've called us to be so that we can change the world with the message of the gospel. We thank you and we praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links.
1: I was uh, praying and I really felt like and, and this, this might be for me. I know it's for me, but I want to share it in a moment before we move any further. Many of us in this room just feel like everything is changing. We're like a whole different person. But every now and then you feel like the old rising up, the, the fleshly desires, the, the, the grossness, the sin, the past just coming up again. And I was just praying to God, I, like, I don't want that. And the word I just feel like I got was focus on what's different. What's different. What's different? What's different? Stop focusing on the the things that are the same. What's different? How have you changed? How are you changing? What's different? And then I started to see the things that are different and they're they're hard to find. I always feel like the old me until I recognize the person who's inside of me. That's what's different. Until I recognize the person he's making me into and then that's different. The victories are different. The change is different. I'm different. I've been different and I'm becoming different every day. It's like when grandparents come and they see my kids again, they go, you've grown so much. I'm like, nah, he's the same size he was yesterday. I don't notice what's different. But God sees us changing when we when we embrace him. And if you're not changing, if there's not difference, ask him, what's different? How can I be different? How am I growing in you? I want to grow in you because he will never leave us trapped where we were he wants us to become something new so as we keep worshiping focus on that find that maybe maybe that means something to you maybe God's speaking something else but we're gonna keep worshiping God we're gonna keep pursuing him we'll come back together to pray
2: me. I am who you say I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say
0: probably heard it. I talk about how God said, but I love you to me. Do you remember this story? In case you don't know it, I uh, was in ministry here maybe my first year. I was kids pastoring. And we used to have a Tuesday morning chapel right here in this room where we come in and and surrounded by leaders and preachers and teachers. We would worship God together. We'd learn together. And I remember coming in one particular Tuesday morning and I was sitting right there where Tiffany's standing. And I was actually standing there, I was was kind of worshiping, everybody around me was worshiping, but in my head I was just saying, God, I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve any of this, I shouldn't be leading, I'm not worthy, I know what I should do and I don't do it. I know what I shouldn't do, and I do it anyway. Like, I don't deserve to be here. What I don't usually tell people publicly is that that conversation was about tithing. I was in ministry, and I couldn't bring myself to consistently tithe, and I knew it was wrong. I felt convicted about it. I just couldn't get over that fear. It wasn't long after that that I had that conversation with God about trusting Him that I told today. But in that moment... All I could do was express this undeniable guilt. Between me and God, it was just guilt. I just felt like I wanted to run in the other direction. I didn't deserve to be here. And when Jason was talking about how we we all feel that dirtiness between us and God, we all feel like there's something we're just not doing right, and it disqualifies us from ministry. That's what I was expressing. But honestly, God met me in that place. And once I finally got done ranting and raving in my head and telling God all the reasons I didn't deserve to be there, I heard the most clear words I've ever heard from God, just four of them. But I love you. (laughs) That's it. But I love you was all he said to me. And suddenly I was released from the guilt. The conviction was still there. But I was pulled back to God. Like, I wanted to obey Him. I didn't have to anymore. It was a genuine, I'm privileged to be able to because He loves me so much. Why wouldn't I want to give to Him? Why wouldn't I want to serve Him with everything? And it was after that that I had that conversation with God. Of course I trust you, God. How could I not? Of course I do. I wanted to trust him with everything. We are children of God. He loves us so much. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't think he would have let me in that place if I had continued to be rebellious, but he pulled me back to him in the most loving way possible because I was willing to say I don't deserve this because I was willing to confront my own sin because I had that honest conversation that's really all it takes. Greta said, I dig into the word, and I do. She said, we all should do it, and we should. But as soon as she came back to that booth, I said to her, you know what, I don't know if I would if it weren't for the stage. I don't know if I would if I didn't have people to pour back into. I genuinely don't know if I would have the discipline enough in myself to do it if I weren't made to. I don't actually think that's... Uh, Yes, it's a a special gift and a calling, but I think if all of us had that same opportunity, we'd probably do the same thing. I don't think it's possible to be a mature Christian and not have people to pour back into. It's not rocket science. It's not magic. It's just the discipline of having that honest conversation over and over and over and over every single day the discipline to figure out how to communicate it, how to give it back to other people. You can't continue on this Christian journey without figuring that out on some degree. I'm not saying y'all have to preach. (laughs) Find somebody to pour back into, or it's just going to stop with you. That's not why God gave it to you. gave it to you to replicate. You're meant to replicate. And by the way, Jason and I both started in kids and youth ministry. (laughs) Some of us want to stay there, he said. Six years, I preached three services a weekend in kids ministry. That gift came from a price. It was a sacrifice. It was a, I mean, I loved it. Don't get me wrong, but It doesn't just happen overnight. It's a discipline over time. I gave that to kids first. I developed it with kids first. I wasn't good at first. (laughs) They don't judge you nearly as harshly as adults, so it was okay when I messed up. They didn't notice, right? But I learned how to cultivate an audience back there with first graders, right? I learned how to keep their attention and maintain that. I learned how to communicate with an audience. All of that work back there pays off up here. We have to be willing to have the honest conversation and we have to be willing to pour it back into other people, no matter how that looks. We're all standing here praying that Jason would reach people with March Madness. Maybe God's calling you to reach people in March Madness in kids' ministry. Instead of praying that the church, the other people would reach people, maybe you should be praying how you can reach people. We're all children of God. God's speaking to each and every one of you right now. How can you give that to other people?
2: Oh how I climb mountains. If the mountains were where you high. Oh how far scared. Descending from the source of its supply. Cause in the highlands and the heartache, you need the more or less inclined. I would search, stopping nothing. You're just not that often. in my way. You're the summit where my feet are. So I will praise you in the valleys all the same. No less God within the shadows. No less faithful when the night leads me astray. You're On the sunrise to where you sweep the sinners past. And oh, how fast would you come running, if just to shadow me through the night and trace my steps through all my failure and walk me out the other side? For who could dare say? Valley hill called Calvary, but for the one called Good Shepherd, like a lamb was slain for me, yeah, I will praise You on the mountains. I will praise You in the mountains in my way. You're the summit where my feet. Shadows, no less faithful when the night leads me astray. Your